and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin Westlander, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Today, we are focusing on what we'd like our adult colleagues to know about treating infections in our tiniest and cutest patients, children. Dr. Laura Bio is a clinical specialist in pediatric antimicrobial stewardship at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford in Palo Alto, California. Her interests include evaluating antimicrobial stewardship interventions through quality improvement projects, improving antimicrobial dosing regimens based on pharmacokinetics, and reducing patient exposure to unnecessary antimicrobials. Hello. And we also have with us Dr. Diana Yu, is a pediatric infectious diseases pharmacist at Doran Becker Children's Hospital, which is associated with OHSU Healthcare in Portland, Oregon. Her research interests include antimicrobial stewardship, implementation of clinical practice guidelines, and antimicrobial usage metrics. Hi, nice to see you again. Nice to have you guys again. Pediatric data often lags behind adult data with regards to treatment of infections. How do you go about extrapolating data to your patients when baseline characteristics don't match perfectly? And how do you go about determining a dose of a needed medication for a child? Yeah, great question. So the way to go about determining a dose for a child when there isn't a clear recommendation really depends on the agent being investigated. A recent example would be uh, remdesivir. So at the start of the pandemic, uh, all we had was in vitro data that it demonstrated against SARS-CoV-2. And it was available through compassionate use, but when it came to the weight-based dose of remdesivir, we had to investigate what would be best to use in a child. At the time, there was actually adult an adult dose recommendation for COVID-19. And also there was some literature that had been reported for remdesivir during its early investigation for Ebola. And this study actually included both adults and children. Fortunately, that adult dose from the trial matched the dose that was being recommended for COVID-19. So voila, we had a pediatric weight-based dose equivalent to the adult dose. So we were fortunate to have that clinical outcomes data to support the remdesivir dose. Of course, that was specific for Ebola though, but that's not always the case when it comes to these newer antibiotics that come to the market in the past few years. We're grateful for the more recent Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act that provides a carrot for manufacturers to conduct pediatric studies with the reward of extending market exclusivity for an additional six months. This has definitely helped and resulted in having either PK modeling data to determine an appropriate weight-based dose in children, or even at least having access to a clinical trial protocol with a weight-based dose that's under investigation. But again, that's all PK data, not clinical outcomes data. And so when it comes to uh, having the clinical outcomes data to support the use of these newer agents in children, it, it's just severely lacking. And we're dependent on the adult clinical outcomes data to guide our decision-making around its use. Yeah, definitely. When trying to find new dosages and new medications for our children, I have used clinicaltrials.gov a lot just to glean some information on dosing since drug companies and academic institutions are often trying to find that pediatric indication. And thanks mostly to the Best Pharmaceutical Children's Act, as mentioned by Laura. Often, we also extrapolate adult experiences to pediatric patients. 
One good example is the utilization of extended infusion beta-lactams. We don't have a lot of clinical outcomes to support this in pediatric practice, but we realize the advantages of it and the potential benefits. And then although it leads to having a cranky child tied to a pole for hours in a day, we will use it when we do need it. Besides the lack of pharmacokinetic data for new agents, we often lack data in management of less common infections and often have to extrapolate from adult practices. Fortunately, we have a lot of pediatric infectious diseases colleagues throughout the nation, and they have formed what we call our SHARPS Collaborative, where we communicate through a listserv and we'll reach out to each other to ask for experiences or to bounce ideas off of. Totally agree, Diana. SHARPS has been a really great resource for PEDS-ID. Um, that's great advice for extrapolating data to treat children that perhaps our adult colleagues can consider when extrapolating data to patients who don't match study characteristics. I think we all end up using logic to extrapolate a dose when absolutely needed, but I do like to see clinical data, as you guys mentioned, for safety and efficacy. If there isn't clinical data, perhaps we should consider using something we have better data for. Why use something off the cuff when we could stick to the standard of care? An example of this is when it's available, often ceftolozone tazobactam has more coverage and lower MICs than ceftazidime avibactam for carbapenem-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa. However, ceftolozone tazobactam is not studied or approved in children, and ceftazidime avibactam is approved all the way down to two months old. We also know a lot more about using ceftazidime in children than we know about ceftolozine. So I always weigh with the risks and benefits of having a lower MIC with the risk that I'm not choosing the most ideal dose for that child. Now to pivot away from operating into the sparse data zone and into infection differences. What are some of the major differences when treating infections in children versus adult that might help out our adult colleagues when they see a typical pediatric infection? Yeah, great question. I find it super interesting that we manage certain infections differently in kids compared to adults. Osteomyelitis is a good example for that. The pathophysiology is actually different for osteomyelitis in children compared to adults, where in children, osteomyelitis is predominantly the result of hematogenous spread of bacteria that then seed the bone compared to contiguous spread in adults. We're fortunate to have some guidelines from professional organizations on how to manage osteomyelitis in children from the American Academy of Family Physicians and European Society for Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Both societies recommend the transition from parenteral to oral antibiotic therapy to complete the antibiotic course in children as long as it's uncomplicated osteomyelitis. So as you can imagine, my PEDS ID colleagues and I were surprised when there was so much buzz around the OVIVO non-inferiority study of adults with bone and joint infection that concluded oral antibiotics were non-inferior to parenteral antibiotics based on their outcome of treatment failure within one year. We were surprised because we commonly treat osteo with oral antibiotics. Another unique situation is the neonatal sepsis patient uh, when it comes to infectious disease differences. The pathogens are fairly unique, including group B strep or GBS, E. coli, and even rarely Listeria monocytogenes. So as you can imagine, the antibiotics that we're using to treat neonatal sepsis are gonna be very different from the antibiotics we choose to treat sepsis in older children or adults. 
our go-to antibiotics for sepsis in neonates is ampicillin and gentamicin, or prior to the shortage, cefotaxime, as we discussed in the last part of our podcast. However, neonatal sepsis is even more complicated since there's also a late onset sepsis in neonates. And that actually brings about concerns of nosocomial pathogens that are specific to your NICU. For example, CONS or coagulase negative staph, but more specifically, most times it's methicillin resistant staphylococcus epidermidis or MRSE. In older children and adults, a blood culture positive for CONS may just be viewed as a contaminant, not treated, but in a neonate, we have a lower threshold of concern with CONS being a true pathogen that would warrant treatment. Then there's even the whole another acronym, TORCH. TORCH is an acronym for the infections that can be acquired in utero or during the birth process that infect the neonate. And that includes toxoplasmosis and syphilis. So there are actually a lot of unique features to neonatal infectious diseases. Yeah, the infections in neonates are particularly interesting. Another disease state that I think is somewhat similar but different from adults and children is usually endocarditis. Often I think about endocarditis or how infective endocarditis is often associated with um, drug use. But in kids, it's a lot different. We think about it mostly due to gut translocation or due to poor dentition. And we often worry about these in kids with single ventricle physiology. Also in those kids, they probably have had a lot of surgery. So that probably means that they have a lot of plastic in their hearts, like a shunt. So getting good visual on that echo isn't always manageable. It's a lot different what we think of in the setting of valvular disease. But fortunately for us, the organisms are pretty similar. So we would think about streptococci and enterococci. Besides that, uh, in kids, I think we're also more likely to see the bread and butter kind of infections, such as otitis media, uncomplicated pneumonia, and appendicitis. And we fortunately are less likely to see more resistant organisms in the pediatric population, which is really fortunate for us since we're talking about the lack of data about management and dosing for those newer agents. We often rely on amoxicillin or amoxiclav or sinusitis in ear infections, as well as for lower respiratory tract infections. And ceftriaxone is really pretty much our go-to drug for rule-out sepsis antibiotics in the majority of children. So fortunately, again, we talked about, since we don't have to worry about these multidrug resistant organisms, we don't really have to look for a lot of PK issues or finding dosing for something like sifiracol. But that isn't to say that we never see ugly organisms in our pediatric children. Have you seen the organisms that grow out of sputiculture with a patient who has cystic fibrosis? Those can be pretty gnarly. So for those kids that are chronically ill, such as patients with cancer and those patients with cystic fibrosis, we have managed a flu of uh, who have been managed with a slew of antibiotics. We know we have seen more resistant organisms. Also, there is an increase in community-acquired multidrug-resistant organisms in children. And despite a general decrease in outpatient antimicrobial prescribing, we're thinking that it's probably linked to household spread of ESBL-producing gram-negatives. Those are great points. There are definitely some pediatric-specific infectious diseases that lead to different approaches from adult standards. There are also some infections in non-previously healthy patients that are much more common in children. One frequent infection is catheter-associated bloodstream infection in patients with short bowel syndrome and parenteral nutrition dependence. We see gram-negative catheter infections almost as much as gram-positives, 
Unfortunately, these patients often have TPN dependence from birth and run out of good central access points. So we tend to try to salvage catheters probably more often than adults do. We often tackle antimicrobial stewardship in very similar ways. For example, prospective audit and feedback and antimicrobial restriction. So what are some differences in antimicrobial stewardship practices between adults and children that may be useful for our adult counterparts to know? Yeah, so there are definitely some differences, uh, but as you mentioned, similarities being that prospective audit with feedback and antimicrobial restriction is uh, used across the board. So the structure of antimicrobial stewardship programs or ASPs are different. And I think prospective audit with feedback is a good example. And it really has to do with the target uh, and scope. And so based on some discussions with other children's ASPs through the Sharps Collaborative, as Diana had mentioned earlier, most pediatric programs have a broader scope for their daily audit with feedback or what we call PAF. And that's compared to adult programs. And so we might actually include a wider range of antibiotics or antimicrobials where the adults may be focusing more narrowly on those broad spectrum agents, such as daptomycin or the newer agents like ceftolozine, tazobactam. This is in part due to adult hospitals just being larger with more beds and antimicrobial use, therefore. Also, the types of infections being audited by the PEDS program may be different since the types of infections that are commonly seen in children aren't the same as an adult. These include things like urosepsis, cowdy, and even diabetic foot being more prevalent in adults compared to children. The other core pillar that was mentioned, the restricted formulary, uh, that list may look similar, but it may look different. I believe most institutions are restricting those newer antibiotics, and that's going to look similar between both adult and pediatric ASPs. Those agents are either going to be on the restricted list or at least non-formulary for that matter. That is one of the benefits of being in a pediatric hospital within an adult hospital. There are good chances of those newer drugs being reviewed and likely being restricted on the adult side. And then at that time, we're reviewing it through our PNT, our pediatric group can give our input. At Dorenbecker, we also utilize prospective audit and feedback and restriction, just like Packard. One of the things that I think we can work on in a microbial stewardship in children is really the length of treatment. Well, although we have a lot of adult data to refer to, like the Stop It trial and the more recent trial comparing 7 to 14 days for uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia, I feel like one of the barriers is acceptance in the pediatric providers since the length of treatment studies are uncommonly performed in children, and there's always a thought that there could be something a little bit different that happens in our babies. Also, I think on the PEDS side, we pick up on some interesting infectious diseases treatment habits. I'm sure a lot of you um, in the PEDS ID world can probably uh, think about this, but like antibiotic treatment for chronic aspiration pneumonia, as well as ventilator-associated tracheitis, um, which is really not managed in a standardized approach within an institution and much less from a national standpoint. But just like adult antimicrobial stewardship, really bringing more people to the table when trying to implement an initiative will grow buy-in at your hospital and hopefully will promote better usage of antibiotics. Again, being involved in the Sharps Collaborative has been really handy because uh, multi-sites can be involved with quality improvement projects to look at better, uh, better antibiotic prescribing in our kids. Thanks guys. Those were great examples of stewardship differences for approaching pediatric patients.
To wrap up this episode, a few key takeaways include use your resources and PK knowledge to extrapolate doses when better options are not available. Some pediatric infections have different pathophysiology and treatment approaches than adults. And though different, antimicrobial stewardship is just as important in children as it is in adults. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Erin Westlander, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Laura Bio and Dr. Diana Yu. Thanks. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Zara Kasamali Escobar. It was edited by Sasha Premaj, Julie Harding, and Corey Medler. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julianne Justo and Erin McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and in the future.